I have fallen into the pit where I now have a big crush on Young Gravy, um, but I know that it's bad. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocliffe. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap. I watched The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? Rush Hour. <laughs> These movies are related. They I are. I promise. Before we get to that, though, how are you doing? What have you been watching? I'm doing well. Things are going good over here. And baby, it's time to talk about it. What did we both watch? Oh, we watched Top Gun. Top Gun! So Guys, good. Top Gun is so good. I cried three times. <laughs> I think it's the only movie I haven't cried in in like 10 years, but I was like experiencing it. I was like fully in. Okay, so yeah, Top Gun's great. Glenn Powell, hot. Everyone in that movie is so hot. Amanda, what would your call sign be? It has to be Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken. No, not in this universe. In my universe. What if you're um, just, like, just going to be Zona? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Ew, that just reminds me of U of A. Um, <laughs> Copper, Sundev, Sparky. I don't know. God, this is worse. Um, what's what's your call sign? But don't ask me a question that I don't have an answer prepared for. Okay, well. That- <laughs> There's been a lot of uh, mythology and myth making about the production of Top Gun with good reason. Mm-hmm. Like they really flew those planes. My favorite, however, is all the guys talking about how difficult it was to film the beach scene because they all basically did a weight cut and like yeah. cut water out of their diet and like cut carbs and so in all the things that you do when you have to cut weight for like a wrestling match or like any sort of combat sport and then they had to refilm parts of it and they were like please no no can't do it again I, I thought that was hilarious uh, also listeners to bring it back to the call signs uh, give us what you think our call signs should be because I feel Ooh, like that's yeah. the best way in which to receive them. I say that now, and then I'm going to end up some something stupid. I'm going to think about your call sign. What else have I been watching? <laughs> I finally, listeners, finally I watched The Fugitive. <laughs> Congratulations. Honestly, it was delightful. Like, I, <laughs> it didn't change my life, um, which for a movie I've been talking about for like six months, I kind of felt like it needed to. But uh, it's really good. And Harrison Ford is extremely hot. He like invented four kinds of hot in this movie. Also, Tommy Lee Jones, an iconic performance. I'll go think up some a chocolate donut with some of those sprinkles on top for him. You know? Yeah. Good for him. Absolutely. I'm happy for you. It's a, it's a great chase movie. Yeah, it was great. I had a great time. How are you? What have you been watching aside from Top Gun? I'm great. I'm incredibly jet lagged. Um, Top Gun, great. I watched a lot of movies on the plane. So we watched Uncharted, Death on the Nile, Dog. One of those movies is good. It involves a dog. It's Uh, up to you, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But no, in terms of movies, I actually did pretty much like Cutting Edge, uh, Romantic Comedy with Moira Kelly and D.B. Sweeney. It's just great. It's a great time if you love the Olympics, if you love figure skating, if you love hockey. Um, if you love Topics, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I was just watching it and I'm like, man, 90s rom-coms, they fucking rip. And then I watched The Gladiator uh, for the first time. Um, oh, with uh, Joaquin Phoenix? And, yeah, and Russell Crowe. And, and Russell uh, Crowe. And it was good. It's a good one. It's like a, you know, it's a sports movie. That's how I saw it, you know? Yeah. They're in the tunnel. They're getting hyped. And then like Russell Crowe and the two other dudes, that moment when you're playing like a pickup sport. And you realize, like, the two guys on your team, like, you guys all kind of know what you're doing. And it's, like, mm-hmm. really 
invigorating and like kind of safe. That's what happened when they were facing death in the Coliseum. And that was really beautiful. Uh, I was happy for them. I watched that movie for the first time only a couple of years ago. Um, I, I don't know how I feel about the, the wheat touching. You know, go touch grass, go touch wheat. Yeah. But in general, great movie. Very beautiful visually, of course. Um, yeah. I was entertained. I'm glad you saw it. That's fun. Yeah. Um, I was watching. I was like, wow, Joaquin Phoenix, what a piece of shit. He kind of reminds me of Joffrey. And then I looked into it more. And apparently the dude who played Joffrey in Game of Thrones based it off of Joaquin Phoenix's character. So, you know, yep. look at me watching a lot of media. <laughs> Connecting the dots. My brain is shattered. Um, <laughs> speaking of like shattered brains, uh, let's talk about the, one of the movies that we're talking about is the girl with the dragon tattoo and we also watched rush hour amanda why did we pair these i think generally these are two movies that have been on our long list for a while and we were trying to figure out how to put them together not necessarily these ones but just in general and we sort of came up with unlikely duos people you don't expect to work out well together or people who who don't expect to work out well together themselves and then throughout the movie end up becoming a great pair and working together to solve a mystery in (laughs) rewatching the girl the dragon tattoo i was like yeah they really are very um unlikely so i thought it was a great excuse (laughs) i know but it's just hilarious like this is like i did this as a double feature that's really bold and i started (laughs) with rush hour um, that's okay. That's better. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of needed a palate cleanser. So I think, uh, it was a good time and it was a stressful time in some capacity, but, uh, want to just flip the coin and figure it out. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Call it heads. It's heads. Yes. What are we doing first? Okay. So I've been thinking about this. Maybe it'll help that you watch them as a double feature. Do we want to like start with rush hour and like ramp our way up? Or do we want to start with Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and have like a nice landing pad? I think based on our Gone Girl discussion, we should start with Rush Hour. Okay. That's kind of what I was thinking as well. All right. All right. Let's start with Rush Hour. Amanda, are you recording? Did you push the record button? Push the damn button! Let's talk about <laughs> <God> Rush Hour. <laughs> God, God damn it. I never know what you're going to say. <laughs> Neither do I. I was like, what did I think of like two days ago that I thought was kind of funny? And it wasn't that funny in practice, but you know, we're here. Tell me what yeah. happened. The movie starts with Detective Lee, who is played by Jackie Chan, raiding a ship in hopes of finding this crime lord, Jun Tao, but only finding his right-hand man, Song. Song escapes, and Lee collects the cultural relics that were on the ship and gives them to Chinese counsel Han. Han and his daughter Su Young, uh, who Lee has a bond with, move to Los Angeles, and Lee is obviously upset about this. In Los Angeles, she is kidnapped by Song, and the FBI are called, and they pawn off LAPD officer Detective James Carter, played by Chris Tucker, by tricking him into thinking he's on the case about the girl, but he's really just there to sort of babysit Lee and make sure he kind of stays out of the way. Carter takes Lee on a sightseeing tour of Hollywood only to lose him because Lee is on a mission to rescue Sue Young and is not here to play any games. Carter sets up a ransom drop with Song. The FBI traces the call and sets up an operation to capture Song. He spots them ahead of time, though, and he blows up the building with C4. 
This reminds Carter of a criminal that he's worked with named Clive uh, in the past, and he convinces the criminal to give them a lead, which directs them to a restaurant in L.A.'s Chinatown. A fight ensues, which they confirm that Song has Sue Young, but ultimately gets Carter and Lee kicked off of the case, and Lee is sent back to Hong Kong. Refusing to give up, Carter convinces his old co-worker to help him, and they get Lee off the plane and back on the mission to rescue the girl. This all culminates in like a gala type event for the Chinese relics. Carter gets the audience to leave and a big brawl breaks out. Carter saves the girl who is strapped into a C4 jacket with help from his old co-worker. And after a fight on the rafters, the kidnapper ends up falling to his death and Carter catches Lee in a giant flag. <laughs> As a reward for rescuing his daughter, the Chinese consul Han sends Lee and Carter on a trip to Hong Kong, which is only where I can assume rush hour two takes place (laughs) how did i do you did great it's a very straightforward movie i feel like yeah i was having a hard time being like and then they went here and then they fought and then they went here and then they fought and then our guys win (laughs) yes notoriously your uh, favorite genre of movie uh, action is in this so (laughs) yeah exactly so why did you choose rush hour for me to see um so buddy cop comedies like or buddy cop movies in general are dime a dozen like lethal weapon is one um, 48 hours but rush hour um was a personal childhood favorite if we're talking selfishly and then also just um kind of was jackie chan's breakout movie in america he had been doing a lot in hong kong um and just chinese cinema in general before that i'm sure we'll get into all that but shout out to jackie chan um, but for you, what were those first impressions? What stood out to you? I'm glad that you made me watch this. Cause this is definitely like just a movie I should have seen. Like, does it mean that like, I don't understand cinema if I haven't seen rush hour? No, but is it like a big movie within American culture that I had missed? Absolutely. So I'm glad you made me watch it. But some of the first things that stood out to me, let's just start with the obvious one is that rush hour one would not be made in 2022 for a plenty of reasons. It starts with the fact that like Hollywood just doesn't invest in movies like this anymore unless they're a part of like a nostalgic series the way they redid Bad Boys or like had a new addition to Bad Boys um, or it would be like for Netflix and it wouldn't be at this level with these types of stars and might also have three or four sequels but it wouldn't be I don't think at the same like cultural impact level that this movie is. Yeah, that's a good point. I think um, especially when you're it's, it's betting on two people who are like not superstars at that point of their career, like they just kind of struck gold with the chemistry. But I think that's well taken that, um, you know, the 15 to 70 million dollar movie in uh, Hollywood doesn't get made. And that's precisely what this is i think this was made for like 35 million dollars or something like that and then of course uh the racial elements of this movie it is like so dependent upon being able to poke fun at these like racial stereotypes that it just is something that wouldn't be seen as like overly humorous today or you'd have to do it really differently um and things like that i just really think about like the scene in the in the bar in the very beginning where jackie chan is sort of tricked into saying whatever chris tucker has said and there's slurs and it's it's funny because i get what they're doing but i don't know if like a writer in 2022 could write that and then people be like what a great idea (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know i think the thing is that part of why it's been just like kind of accepted at this point is because of nostalgia and all of that but also 
if it was made in 2022, I think it would just like they would just move the goalposts on like what the humor is being aimed at as instead of like because it's never on like how Jackie Chan speaks English. It's on like whether or not he can and that totally. assumption, which then Jackie Chan gets to pull the rug out from under Chris Tucker and be like, you yeah. were the one who was ignorant to not knowing that I could speak English because you had never actually asked. Jackie Chan saying the N-word probably would get scrapped. They would probably find some other way to get Jackie Chan into his famous I don't want trouble action scene. Um, mm-hmm. But that's an easy thing to shift to. So I think this movie could get modernized or whatever, but um, it is definitely a relic of its time, much like any comedy from 70s, 80s or or what have you. Most of the actual like humor is the characters aimed at themselves, like Chris Tucker making a joke about himself or something that he has done, basically, or Jackie Chan kind of having that same agency as well. So I think that's yeah. also where it, it kind of uh, skirts around some of the uglier aspects that are available to them. Um, somehow, uh, despite this film being directed by Brett Ratner, who's like a great A piece of shit, but Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker, awesome. Uh, is there anything else that stood out about this uh, first watch for you? Yes, Ken Leung, who plays Song, um, is like the shaved blonde-headed guy, plays truly one of my favorite characters in Lost. He plays Miles, who comes around like the third or fourth season. Um, And that's sort of like a turning point in the show where like you're either still in it or you have absolutely dropped off because it goes in a very different direction. But every time I see him, and he has like a really big career, but anytime I see him in something, I'm like, it's Miles. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Miles. (laughs) You're so young. (laughs) Genuinely. I've never seen another thing or I haven't noticed him in any other thing. Much like you have this problem with like a lot of the movies we've watched and they get the Clary Starling effect, I guess, is that what we've decided to name it as mm-hmm. a podcast? He's in like a handful of things. He was just in um, Old and he was in Original Recipe Law and Order. He's like a detective in the movie Saw. He plays like a therapist in Squid and the Whale. Like he's like in a lot of things. Him, him being like, put the gun down, fight like a man to Chris Tucker was so cold. And then he dies, but whatever. So yeah, anytime Ken Leong is in something, I get really excited because um, I I love when Miles comes into Lost and he plays such a good character. Does he have um, much of like an action role in Lost? Well, there's like a, there's like a, a heavy amount of like combat in Lost because it's sort of like these two sections of people who think that they're right about how the island should be used and they are often fighting each other. Um, But like Miles gets like blown up like a time or two. He like speaks to ghosts. He like (laughs) hates his dad. He like has facial piercings. It's like he like is on a boat full of physicists. He there's a whole situation, but uh, Miles is great. One of my like most, I think toward the end, they give him so much to do. Um, which is a great idea to just give Ken Leung like as much work as possible. I'm glad that he has had a whole career that I've been ignorant to. Yeah. And then something I truly have not stopped thinking about in a way where I have, this might become like my number one most played song on Spotify this month is the scene where the little girl is singing Mariah Carey's fantasy 
is so good. I actually <laughs> rewound it and watched it again. Oh my God. The first time, it, like she immediately gets kidnapped and the entire like mood yeah. of that scene gets ripped away from you. And it's really cute because it doesn't come that long after she comments to Jackie Chan's character that like she's nervous to go to America because she like doesn't have any friends and she doesn't know how she'll fit in. And here she is just like, belting the pop queens like on her way to school with these two bodyguards and it's so cute (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's so happy (laughs) oh it's definitely uh one of the best scenes of the movie um it's what the first things i think about when i think of rush hour i get it i like that they don't stop her though like they just let her do her thing oh no absolutely it's so good (laughs) um i think now even without having seen the movie the song War always reminded me of Rush Hour, I think just because it was like always on. But now I'm going to connect fantasy to Rush Hour as well. That's super funny. I feel like War is a song that I connect with Rush Hour. And I think it's also in Small Soldiers. Have you seen that movie? When mm-hmm. like the toys come alive? I think Kirsten Dunst is in it. Sure. It, I, I, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, Mariah Carey, shout out to her. I think that's my introduction to Mariah Carey was this movie. Okay, so now I have a hot take. Okay. I don't know if I think Chris Tucker is funny. Okay. I think he was comedic, but like at no point was I like, ha, what a, th- ha, ha, like <laughs> out loud <laughs> to anything he did or anything he said. Um, I don't know anything about him really. Like, is the way he speaks a shtick for this movie? Is this the way he speaks? I don't know. This is now for you to defend him as someone who loves this movie or tell me I'm right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to feel, but I'm not, I'm not like rushing out to see what other comedies he's in. I don't need to defend him. You're nice. just wrong. Okay. <laughs> That's no, fair. I, it- <laughs> No, I mean, he was a comedian. He had done a lot on like Def Comedy Jam um, in the 90s. He was obviously, uh, perhaps his most iconic role is in Friday with Ice Cube. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That makes, okay, yep. As Smokey. He was in Jackie Brown. He was in The Fifth Element. You take him or you leave him. You think he's funny or you don't. Um, If it didn't hit for you, it didn't hit for you. But uh, I think in in this duo and why I think we can get into this more, but why I think he was a good match with Jackie Chan is because Jackie Chan is also a physical comedian and like he based his physical action comedy almost on like some Charlie Chaplin stuff and a bunch of other the old Hollywood and like they have timing together but I think what they have best is physical chemistry yeah and doing all the you know the fighting and all the quirky fighting and the funny fighting that comes in a Jackie Chan movie the way his body moves is just very like articulate all of that I think was necessary to for this comedy duo to uh to flourish in the way it does so um i understand what you're saying it's not like the writing of this movie is great necessarily that also might so if like written comedy jokes are more your thing or or like fast quippy dialogue type based comedy is more your thing the physicality of it all probably won't hit as much but that's kind of where it's based in more I do like him in The Fifth Element. I'm glad you reminded me of that. That's a really great movie and a really great role. Um, I don't know. It just it just didn't land for me, but I also understand I'm incorrect. And I also wouldn't go on record and be like, Chris Tucker is not funny. Like, that's not how I feel. Don't cut that and then, like, put it somewhere. <laughs> Disclaimers all that's around. How I'm gonna, that, that's the cold open. I know it. That's not how I feel in this movie 
I it felt like a, a like a little trying too hard. I get it. I just I just think you're like wholeheartedly wrong. That's fine. <laughs> I'm willing to be wrong about that because it's just not my bag. I'll, I'll let you think about that more as you go on after this. But since you watched this movie, what have you thought about the most? A handful of things, but it really is a great comedy pairing, and I'm I get it. Like when I I knew forever that this was a a movie comedy pairing, that this was um, just a movie pairing in general. But now that I've seen it, I'm like I understand their chemistry is wonderful. They play off of each other, very fun. It's fun to watch uh, Chris Tucker's character sort of like Americanize a little bit Jackie Chan's character, and Jackie Chan's like. I'm a man of the world. Like, I don't need you to do this. Um, and just like, that's really funny. And the way that they, the scene where they're fighting upstairs in the uh, Chinese food restaurant, where they're sort of like in their flow for the first time is really wonderful. Um, and I, I definitely understand that the pairing, I get it. So there's an argument that Rush Hour 2 is the better Rush Hour. Mm. And it's because, at least in part, they lean more into their chemistry together in fighting scenes, in just the banter, like they have figured that all out. But all the seeds of it are in here, whether it's like the the scene where they're both talking about their dads and like the stories are obviously just yeah. getting more and more outlandish or uh, yeah, the dancing scene and not everybody can make those things funny and they both have to bring that same kind of energy and willingness to laugh at themselves as well as the other one. And I think that is what makes uh, the pairing special. Rush Hour 2, also a great Las Vegas movie. Mm. And then um, I really thought about how much this movie played on TV. (laughs) I feel like it was always on TV. Yes. And it's probably because of my next point, which is it's an extremely well-paced movie. and, And yet there's like a couple of, there's like a minute out of like a couple of different scenes you could cut out for TV and like still have the movie make a lot of sense. And still, like, not miss anything. So, um, yes, that's just something I've thought a lot about is that I feel like every time I turned on TNT, it was, like, Avatar or Rush Hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. And it's it's, (laughs) like you said, it's segmented well where you can fit it within the commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. It only needs to take probably two hours of TV time Mm -hmm. because it is only, like, I think 100 100 minutes flat. Um, Another thing I've thought a lot about is that they are barely in Rush Hour. (laughs) Um, they're in rush hour for like one scene and it's when the girl gets kidnapped. Mm -hmm. I would love to know why they named the movie rush hour. (laughs) That's a great question. It's up there with collateral in terms of the least amount of traffic sense in a Los Angeles movie. Um, totally. But if, if it was only for Ken Leong to show up to the car and be like, sorry, rush hour. And then to shoot the guys. Yeah. That's fine with me. Uh, So this is something I came across in my research that I've thought a lot about since is that this movie indirectly invented Rotten Tomatoes. And that's so fun. Hell yeah. You know what? That's why I picked this movie. (laughs) So uh, it's listed as the catalyst movie for the creation of Rotten Tomatoes. This man, the website's founder, um, was a huge Jackie Chan fan and was inspired to create the website after collecting all of the reviews of Jackie Chan's Hong Kong action films as they were being released into the United States. In anticipation of Rush Hour, his first major like Hollywood success, the fan coded the website in two weeks and the site 
shortly went live after the film's release. So like Jackie Chan and Rush Hour are the reason we have Rotten Tomatoes. I want to say thank you to Rush Hour, but I'm not the hugest Rotten Tomatoes fan. That's so random. But it's so wild. Like what a fun <laughs> little, what a tidbit. Now you just, everyone knows now. Yeah. If anybody needed a fun fact about Rush Hour, do you know Rush Hour's Rotten Tomato score? The tomato meter is 61%. Hmm. With solely 74 reviews. And the audience score is at 78% with over 250,000 reviews. Rush Hour, the first adventure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The first tomato. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad it's not the second tomato. Nobody wants to be second tomato. No, nobody wants to be second tomato. (laughs) That's why they're buddy cops or equal tomatoes. Find someone who treats you like first tomato, Zach. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So after discovering that, what was like maybe the second thing you looked up about the movie? (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, I wanted to know more about both of the actors. Um, And I started with Chris Tucker. And I was sort of thinking, like, what else has he done since these Rush Hour movies? What has he been up to for the last... 20 years. Um, He was in Silver Linings Playbook in 2012. He was in an Ang Lee movie from 2016 called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk alongside Kristen Stewart. Um, And he was in a video short last year. And according to his IMDb, he is in an untitled Ben Affleck slash Matt Damon project that is currently being filmed. I think that's the one about Nike. Yes, it is. It is the one about Nike. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, and yeah, so he's definitely taken like sort of a breather, but, um, picks his movies well, it seems. Have you watched Friday? I have, but a a very long time ago. Okay. Okay. It is a Dr. Bob favorite. Is it really? (laughs) Yeah. I think we have it both on DVD and on VHS. So I have seen Friday, but not as an adult. So (laughs) I should probably rewatch it. Um, And then, you know, if I looked up Chris Tucker, I, of course, wanted to know more about Jackie Chan. I feel like I have a very basic understanding of Jackie Chan's career, but I wanted to know if this was his first American movie and... It wasn't, it wasn't. So he had been in other movies in America in the 1980s. He had actually been acting since the late 60s, even as a child. Um, So pretty much his entire life. And uh, his launch in America in the 1980s wasn't necessarily what he was hoping for. And so he returned to Hong Kong in the rest of the 80s and the early 90s to continue acting, but continue directing and continue producing and being heavily involved in all angles of the films he was involved in. Um, His martial arts movies from China had become very popular in America. I feel like America had like a love affair with martial arts in like the late 80s, early 90s. He was a big part of that and his movies were a big part of that. Um, But it wasn't until Rush Hour that he had his first like big Hollywood blockbuster success. He had sort of been noticed in some movies that had been successful, but nothing like what he's doing in this movie um, at the, you know, the opening Oh, being able to open the movie, being a main character, being like on the poster, like all that kind of stuff and and being involved in in that same way and 
the way it's now received of being a really big popular American movie. But in general, Jackie Chan seems like a really cool person. Everything I've read about him seems extremely cool. He speaks like six languages and like dabbles in like 11 others. It's pretty incredible. Um, And I love the internet. And the internet told me his favorite football team is Manchester City. Oh, boo. (laughs) Boo. Boo. Now we hate Jackie Chan. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie Chan is an institution, that's for sure. I grew up watching Police Story and Rumble in the Bronx and The Young Master and The Drunken Master and all of his Hong Kong movies that made him, you know, famous all across like Asia and Europe. He has some tough political views. I'll say that, like, you know, okay, just so we don't get too far ahead of the Jackie Chan 10 out of 10 guy. He's like maybe 7 out of 10. Um, okay. But, you know, he's been famous for a long time, so it's hard to stay yep. up there. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely iconic. The easiest way to put it is he's like, Tom Cruise before he before Tom Cruise decided to like be Ethan Hunt for his entire life like mm-hmm. Jackie Chan was always the one doing his own stunts like he made that a thing um the bloopers or like even just like the accidents that are shown after a movie all mm-hmm. of his movies are like as legendary as his movies just go watch the police story stunt where he like slides down a pole in the mall like they they replay it like it's a like it's a, a sports moment that like a great goal was scored and they just replay it from like six different angles because that's how crazy the, the stunt was. Um, but yeah, Jackie Chan is like an all time like figure in cinema writ large. And yeah. so that's kind of why I wanted to pick this movie for real is because Rush Hour was his proper American breakthrough after he, he kind of grinded for a while uh, overseas. And so it's too bad that he supports the fake team, Manchester City. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you can't you can't win them all. And Jackie Chan won Rush Hour, so that's all that matters. And Man City also can't win them all. Um, I wanted to know how many sequels there were. There are three Rush Hour movies, technically, and a rumored fourth one on the way, but that has been, like, rumored since, like, 2016. So uh, everyone says, basically, don't hold your breath. But both Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan have technically signed on but we'll see where that goes like anything i wanted to know if it had won anything um this one this movie won no oscars but it did win a grammy for best instrumental composition written for a motion picture grammy grammy award winning rush hour (laughs) (laughs) do you have any other questions about this movie yes um i wanted to know if you recognized the woman cop uh, Johnson from anything else? No, not at all. Okay. I was driving myself crazy trying to figure out where I knew her from. And so, of course, I had to look it up. But she is the voice of Mirage in The Incredibles, the like sexy silver lady who, like, oh my God, with, really? Like on the island. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly had no idea what her name was this whole time. Mirage. Um, I think she's. All, I think this actress is also like in La Bamba. She's probably in other stuff. That's just where I <laughs> recognize. <laughs> I would have. I, I truly would have never put that together. At what age did you see this movie? Slash, just I want to hear like your relationship to this movie growing up. The womb. I don't like. <laughs> yeah. No. Probably. <laughs> yeah. It came out in '98, three years after I was born. So I think I just this movie has always been in my life. Obviously, my dad loves Jackie Chan movies. Um, he always appreciated Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee, um, Hong Kong cinema, just good action films and, and wushu films. And so this was like a gateway to opening me up to those. Like, you know, I don't really remember the plots of a lot of Jackie Chan movies, but then yeah, I think Criterion released a collection of Jackie Chan films a little bit ago. And I was watching a few of them and I'm like, oh, I've seen all these 
I just didn't know this is what's going on or why they were fighting. Um, so that's my relationship specifically like to Jackie Chan or like what this opened up to me. But again, this movie childhood favorite must have watched it dozens of times rush hour two my cousin's dad is in like the corner of the movie and so we'd always like pause it and be like there he is there's uncle um, oh my god That's so this awesome. movie's always been a part of my life it, it's like as integral as like i don't know any disney movie or like watching the kobe and shack lakers like this is just one of those things that me and my friends and my family quoted all the time we quote the bloopers all the time um so mm-hmm. it's truly uh intertwined with I guess my person. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I love that. Amazing. Um, do you have any like notes that we didn't get to before anything else? Honestly, go watch other Jackie Chan movies. Like even if it's just the fight scenes, it's as good as like, it's an action version of pulling up musical numbers, like or watching Gene Kelly dance or like Donald O'Connor doing the make him laugh scene. Like that's Jackie Chan's action like that's how he does martial arts movies once he found that niche it's really special and it has influenced like combat movies and and actors and physical comedians um from then on like you can see it in the hints of shang chi especially in the um bus fight when Mm -hmm. he starts using his jacket as kind of a weapon like that everybody was like oh this is a jackie chan scene like clearly so um it's so influential and this is kind of a gateway to open that up for you so if you're watching this for the first time or revisiting it for the first time in a while um spend time with jackie chan kicking ass and also making jokes and talking about how it hurts to to punch someone and he shakes his hand and does that whole thing it's a good time Mm -hmm. absolutely okay i have a couple questions really quickly did you watch the cartoon jackie chan adventures i did that, show was, and that w- show was very fun. Yeah. Shout out to Uncle. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I had a lot of context, but I was like, oh, yeah, Jackie Chan. He's a martial arts guy. Let's watch the show. <laughs> like, I don't know. Have you ever seen, uh, like, have you seen the Shanghai Nights, Shanghai Noon movies with Owen Wilson and him? I don't think I have, but I know what they are. Okay. Like, They're not like as good. I- if you have just watched Everything Everywhere All at Once, um, watch Police Story 3 because uh, Michelle Yeoh shows up in that movie. Um, I just rewatched that movie like a couple days ago. Everything Everywhere All at Once or Police Story 3? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, what? No, Everything Everywhere. And I just kind of keep walking around my house saying, Rakakuni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a fucking good movie. I'm going to um, be so sad when that movie doesn't win any Oscars. <laughs> I'm literally going to cry. Like, I watching it again, I... Even and like knowing all of the emotional beats, I was like, fuck, this movie is so good. Look, <gasps> sometimes it doesn't matter what movie wins the Oscar, it matters what movie you want to do laundry and taxes while, while watching. Uh, <laughs> I can't say those things. Oh man. <laughs> um we should watch some long car buy movies on this podcast. Anyway. We should, uh, man. Open my blind spot. Yeah. My last question, which is really dumb. Have you had eel or camel's hump? I've had eel in the sense of Sushi. It is one mm-hmm. of my go. It's like a go-to roll situation for me. Um, but I have not had camel's hump. Have you had I, either? I've had eel, but I have not had camel's hump. I um, wonder where we can find some. L.A. <laughs> probably. That's that was literally my first thought. <laughs> it was like probably Los yeah. Angeles. There are so many little moments in this movie that like I just think of and make me laugh. Like mm-hmm. in the restaurant, whenever Chris Tucker like waves a plate over, smells it, and, and like waves it away. In the way, yeah. <laughs> Lastly, mm-hmm. would you watch this movie again? I would. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most no sounding I would. 
I'm not rushing to see it again, um, nor am I rushing to see Rush Hour 2 or 3, but I feel much better understanding such a significant part of American culture. Well, I'm glad you watched it. Maybe it opened up some other uh, movie rabbit holes you could fall into or something like that. But if anything, I'm glad you've watched one of the all-time TNT movies. Uh, yeah, truly. All right. Are we ready for just a complete left turn? Um, into Sweden. Into I think I said that before the last David Fincher movie we watched. <laughs> yeah. You did. You did. We, well, I mean, that one was a little bit like at least Bonnie and Clyde was also dark. I guess people died in both of these movies as well, but <laughs> not really in the same tone. <laughs> They're both missing girl movies in different ways. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're going from a buddy cop comedy to uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo <laughs> 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 to a novel. Let's take yep. a break. Jesus yes, Christ. please. <laughs> This episode of Blind Spotters is not at all sponsored by Fruits and Roots, but if you're in Las Vegas and looking for real food that tastes real good, Fruits and Roots is the place to go. They serve organic, nutritious food that you'll just feel good about. Hit their drive-thru and get a smoothie, my favorite is the gummy bear, or one of their perfect acai bowls packed with fruit and delicious house-made granola. Fruits and Roots also uses sustainable, eco-friendly packaging for all their products, so it's an all-around guilt-free experience. Check it out, and you'll thank me later. Zach, tell me what happens in David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Once again, so much. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, directed by David Fincher, written by Steve Zalian, based on Stieg Larsson's novel of the same name. Starts with Michael Blomquist, played by Daniel Craig who is an investigative journalist dealing with the fallout of a libel case brought to him by Hans-Erik Werderstorm, who Michael tried to take down but didn't do it with enough evidence. Lisbeth Slander, played by Rooney Mara, is a hacker and like private investigator person who is pretty antisocial but really awesome at her job, and she compiles a background check on Michael for Henrik Wenger, who is played by Christopher Plummer. Henrik then asks Michael to investigate the 40-year-old disappearance and apparent murder of Henrik's grandniece, Harriet. Henrik says he has the evidence to take Wernerstrom down for real, and so Michael agrees and moves into the cottage on the Wenger family estate, leaving his like lover and business partner, Erica Berger, who is played by Robin Wright, to kind of deal with the fallout of the libel case on her own, while their magazine that they own together, Millennium, like loses money. Meanwhile, Elizabeth, who is a ward of the state, um, her guardian has a stroke and is replaced by this other guy named Nils Bergman, who is an absolute piece of shit. Sexually assaults Elizabeth when she asks for money, like negative 100 out of 10 bad guy. One day, she secretly records him raping her. In their next meeting, she tases him, tattoos him across the chest with I'm a rapist pig, and makes him agree to secure her financial independence, or else she'll share that video she recorded online. Back on the island, Michael talks to the Vanger family members who are in and out of contact with each other, and with the inadvertent help of his daughter, Michael realizes that some of the notes in one of the notebooks... It refers to Bible verses. So along the way, doing his research, Michael realizes that Lisbeth is the one that researched him to like an illegal extent, like hacked into his computer and everything like that. And instead of, you know, suing her, 
He decides to hire her as his research assistant. Our unlikely duo is finally together. She discovers connections to young women murdered over the course of two decades, and they realize that they're dealing with a serial killer. After Michael is shot out while on a walk and a bullet grazes his forehead, Lisbeth tends to his wounds, and then they have sex. They continue to research the case and discover more connections and evidence, and they start to suspect Martin, who is played by Stellan Skarsgård. He's Harriet's brother and the head of the Wenger Company. And then while she was at like the library, Lisbeth also discovers that Harriet and Martin's father, Gottfried, committed those murders. So Michael breaks into Martin's house to find more proof, but Martin finds him and kidnaps him, takes him into the basement where he has clearly previously committed murders. Before Martin can kill Michael, Lisbeth shows up and then like knocks him out with a golf club. And then Martin flees, Lisbeth pursues him, and eventually Martin dies in a car explosion. Eventually, the two realize that Harriet is actually alive and in hiding. And so they go to London to confront Anita, who they had talked to before, only this time knowing that she is actually Harriet. And Harriet explains that she was sexually abused by her father and brother. And so the real Anita, her cousin, smuggled her off the island and let Harriet take Anita's identity in London. Harriet then returns to Sweden, reunites with Henrik. They cry. It's beautiful. Henrik gives Michael the supposed evidence that he promised him, but it turns out to be outdated and useless. Lisbeth takes matters into her own hands, hacks into Werner Strom's accounts, basically, and then like gives Michael the evidence he needs to take him down, which then causes Werner Strom to flee and get murdered because of the incidents. And Lisbeth, who has been building up feelings for Michael, then prepares a card and a present for him. But then she sees him back with Erica one night. So she throws it all away and drives off to her motorcycle because men ain't shit. How'd I do? That's the whole movie. You honestly, like, you honestly didn't miss, like, a, a single part. And this movie, every time I watch it, I realize is more complicated than I remember. Yeah, it's like a solid and stuffed 245. So uh, why don't you tell me why this movie is the one you picked for this topic? Um, well, I think just the combination of the two of them, it just works really well. And I love that when he realizes that she's hacking into his stuff, that he's like, that's actually who I need on my side and uses that instead of is like uh, enraged about it. Um, and then they have a romantic interest and that's a very fun side story, especially since Mikel is usually with like beautiful, conventionally beautiful blonde women. Um, it's fun for Elizabeth who is unconventional in every way uh, to sort of have that romantic relationship with him while they are working towards something that they're both very passionate about. Um, and I also wanted to slowly knock off movies on your Fincher list. And I wanted to talk about probably my hottest take is that this is a comfort film. <laughs> it's fucking bizarre, dude. I gotta be real. When do I, when do you want me to talk? I'll about get, that? I'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to actually like clear out the floor, call an ISO for you. So, okay. <laughs> what were, uh, some of the first things that stood out to you while you're watching? So it took 80 minutes for the buddies to get together for, Michael and Elizabeth to like finally start their whole like unlikely duo situation. Um, but once they do, and the movie's good before that, but once they are together, I really like their chemistry. Um, I didn't really, couldn't precisely place like how young Elizabeth is supposed to be. I know in the book she's supposed to be like 20 or 23 or something like that. Yeah, and obviously, she's like Daniel, 24 or something. Yeah. Um, but there was a good, fun, like, curmudgeon older person who knows how to use the internet and knows how to research working with someone who like grew up doing that anyway uh, i think of the scene when uh they're fumbling around on the laptop and michael's trying to find some files and he goes oh where did i put that and you can see lisbeth getting annoyed at him 
um but not in a way that's like she respects him enough and there's starting to be enough like feelings between the two where she's kind of letting it go um but there's just a bunch of small moments like that that um i enjoyed about about their chemistry but i texted you this but whenever they're in martin's basement and then martin flees and then she's like may i kill him to mm-hmm. michael is so funny and that almost like solidified their bond for me like she wants to do what she wants to do but she respects and like cares about michael enough to be like i don't have to do this if you don't want me to um i thought it was really sweet but i i really bought those two even on the surface i don't know if i would be like yeah daniel craig and rooney marsh like totally be in a movie together where they solve a murder and have sex but it's so good <laughs> so it is the most unlikeliest of unlikely duos i think i read that a lot of people were up for both roles um, but Daniel Craig ended up being able to do it because I guess like Skyfall and the studio was having like trouble financially. So it just kind of worked out. And then um, at first Fincher wasn't sure if he could make Rudy Mara turn into Elizabeth um, just because they work together on social network. And that's a very different character. Uh, we'll get into Rooney Mara some more for sure. But yeah. um, I thought it was interesting that at first he was hesitant. But I wish they made more of these. I think the dynamic would have been fun. Another movie that goes into the oh, this has jokes canon for me. I'm really happy an investigative journalist, you know, is finding love. Good for him. But I, but I think they both are good at their jobs, just in different eras. And yeah, so 100%. It's, it, it's not like he's sort of this, like, dumb idiot reporter who has fumbled his way into a good career, and she's, like, actually the smart one. They just have, like, he has years of talent, and she has current, like, skills. And they, like, work together. Yeah, I think it's... Um one of those moments <laughs> like when you're on the internet and then you meet someone or you like interact with someone who has kind of the same interests as you and speaks your language you didn't know that you existed because like being online is a very solo experience despite all the social aspects it brings um so i think that was one of those things that especially for elizabeth clicked like oh my god he understands he's not judging me for like the amount of dirt i can dig up and in fact that makes me more appealing for it to him or whatever mm-hmm. other thing that stood out stellan skarsgård I mean, he is so spectacular as like a character actor. He he straddles the line between tender and menacing, like really beautifully in almost any of his roles. I feel mm-hmm. like he always, when I think of Stellan Skarsgård, I expect him to be very warm and like inviting, but also like I'm a little hesitant about him every single time. Um, He's even so in, like, scary in this role. Uh, his scene when they're in the basement, when, when he starts playing uh, the Enya song. I got some American Psycho vibes from that. And apparently Daniel Craig just like had that song on his iPod and was like, hey, Dave, why don't you use this? Again, Stellan Skarsgård, just a character actor I love when he shows up and stuff. Kind of has that similar thing for like Philip Seymour Hoffman where he has a very distinct persona or like presence on screen, even Mm -hmm. as he melts through um, different characters and even Baron Harkonnen in Dune. Lastly, the thing that stood out was this this is a huge like men are terrible. Men are awful film. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> even down to the last shot the whole fucking movie it's so good yeah. um i think of when uh Mikael meets uh lisbeth for the first time and brings her donuts to her apartment and he says i want you to help me catch a murderer of women and her like her eyes light up yeah <laughs> like it truly in all of its essence is like men ain't shit let's bring <laughs> them down oh yeah also in that scene rooney mara's fuck you you fucking fuck shirt Iconic. So good. So I want to talk more about her. But oh, we, we absolutely will. I'm just saving it. What um, have you thought about most since you watched it? I When I was watching it, I was like, 
thinking about Daniel Craig a lot because you spend a lot of time with him. And this isn't necessarily like a movie star performance. It's like almost that he he's stepping back and he's not being like, you know, he had to put on weight for this movie. Um, mm-hmm. He adopted a, like a more neutral accent to like kind of melt into Sweden a little more. The girl with the dragon tattoo, Lisbeth, isn't also the star. Like she is and she isn't like they're kind of co-stars. The, the novel itself, like the story itself felt like the star of the movie, which isn't always the case in mystery movies. It can be. And sometimes that overtakes the movie more than the actual product. But I feel like this is one where the novel and the adaptation of it all really it was so faithful to the book i guess to the important parts of the book that it really just drove the vehicle of the franchise i guess i don't know if that makes sense on my rewatch for the episode i put in my notes that i want to be in the david fincher book club um (laughs) (laughs) it seems like he reads really fucked up books (laughs) you know what's funny you know something i did not look up initially was like the differences between the book and the movie i haven't been able to I haven't read the book um, in the f- little bits that I have. It's extremely readable. Um, so I would love to, d- I would definitely love to read the book, but um, I had accidentally rented the Swedish version of the movie, which came out first. And if you think this movie is gruesome, wait until you don't have American um, restrictions. I turned it off. <laughs> That's fair. And I was like, I think I rented the wrong movie. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't like, were they also speaking English? Oh, no, no. Uh, (laughs) But this was like in 2008 or nine. Like I was like young and my mom and I were like, this is a thing we've heard about. We like kind of weird movies. Let's watch it. And we were like, I don't want to watch this anymore. (laughs) That's so funny. I tried reading the book while we were in college, but um, reading the book at a pool in college is just, grounds to never finish a book and yeah. then i think my copy like the binding melted in the phoenix sun so classic just wasn't meant to be <laughs> other thing i thought about a lot um with this movie is the structure itself um mm-hmm. it's a weird 240 like because it doesn't feel slow but there is a lot in it um so richard brody uh new yorker critic um kind of called it fincher's his girl friday in the sense that there's so much material crammed into the movie and he kind of said that it's more satisfying to think about after the fact because so many things are happening so many moments are kind of flying by and Mm -hmm. like i said earlier it takes almost 80 minutes for our two kind of co-stars to meet each other but then on top of that there's still like an hour and a half left for them to get after it i mean it sort of reminds me of zodiac like zodiac has so much content in it and it's like a two and a half hour, three hour film, of course. But even then, it's twice as much as any other person would have bothered to put into a movie. Yeah. And this movie is definitely not structured in the classic three act construction of a story. It's the five act one. There's a really good YouTube video on the Lessons from the Screenplay channel. But it's structured in five acts instead of three acts. And it's surprising that it doesn't drag. Like there's a real opportunity after they solve the case and Harriet reunites with Henrik that it could just slow down in a weird way, but it doesn't. So that's a credit to everyone involved. I mean, it sort of reminds me of the way that um, Amy Dunn coming home to Nick isn't yeah. the end of the movie. Like there's yeah. a whole nother section. I thought about that a lot um, during this movie. And I even wrote like David Fincher loves heartbreaking scenes in the snow where you watch your loved one be in love with somebody else <laughs> specifically in the snow <laughs> with like the sugar, the sugar kiss. In, oh yeah. 
uh, Gone Girl and then the the end of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I am so mad about the Oscars this year because this how did this one not get nominated for adapted screenplay? Honestly, so just running through the adapted screenplay nominees: Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Okay, fine. Moneyball. Absolutely. Shout out to great. Steven's Alien. He had a great 2011. The Ides of March. Absolutely not. Hugo. No. No. The Descendants. Which one? Yeah, people love that movie. I know, but like this like this book getting crammed down into this movie. <sighs> I know, just, man. But you know, again, shout out to Steve's Alien. He uh had a great 2011. Moneyball, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. A real one-two punch. Um, it got the editing Oscar, but like, damn. I think best direct. I mean, has has any David Fincher movie won like a top Oscar? He's been nominated for a uh, director three times and lost. Did Benjamin then, Button win anything? No, Pitt was nominated for Benjamin Button. Eisenberg was nominated for Social Network. Oldman was nominated for Mank, all lost. Rooney Mara was nominated for Dragon Tattoo, and Rosamund Pike was nominated for Gone Girl, all lost. And then Treasure P. Henson for Benjamin Button and Emily Seyfried for Supporting Actress, all nominated but lost. Wow. Give this man a fucking Oscar. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) And even still, like, he's won one BAFTA. He's won one Golden Globe. Like, he has more Emmys <laughs> and Grammys <laughs> than he has anything else. Like that's so infuriating. <laughs> well, look, we'll get to like I think that ties into uh, his 2010s and like what happens after this movie. But okay, yeah, continue. It's tough. It's tough. Fincher loves a murder movie. Uh, loves a serial killer movie. He said that he wasn't like he didn't need to do another one after doing uh, Seven and Zodiac. But he was interested about the opportunity of a hard R franchise, uh, mm-hmm. which this presented. Um, you know, this had all the hallmarks of any good Fincher thriller in which he gets to talk about deranged people, particularly deranged men. So, yeah, he really hates men. It's kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> For a man who generally can't write a woman. <laughs> that, you know. That um, but I mean, he didn't write this one. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, it leads us to uh, just the biggest point is that Rooney Mara is so fucking good in this movie. I wrote in my notes that Craig, Plummer, and Skarsgård are all really top tier in this film, but Rooney Mara is transformative. Like, she is just completely embodied herself into Lisbeth Salander. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because, again, Rooney Mara, the movie she does before this is The Social Network. And she does great with uh, she works with Fincher that takes a certain kind of person to return to Fincher. And then not only that, but she's um, verbal sparring in Sorkin dialogue. Like that's a good kind of showcase for someone. It was kind of a breakout role for her in a way. She's had an interesting career. You know, she is known to be very stoic and like expressionless almost, which is why like the two moments two maybe three moments of like real emotion is like just right in the eyes and nowhere else and it's almost like Lisbeth is allowing herself to have a feeling like it's after like the first sexual assault in the office and then it's it's when 
uh, Mikkel asks, do you want to help me catch a murderer of women? And then it's when she sees Mikkel with Robin Wright's character and she like looks genuinely upset. Those yeah. are just like, but it, her face doesn't change. Like she still stays true to herself. It's like all in the eyes. And that's so <laughs> impressive. It's good without this moment anyway. But I think this moment gave the other side of like the hard coin is whenever she at the, near the end of the movie asks Michael for $50,000 and he's just like, yeah, okay. You want coffee? Yeah. And she like softens like for the first time, really. Um, and again, she does that all in her eyes. Uh, so yeah. Wesley Morris in his review for the Boston Globe wrote, I don't think I've seen an actor do more with deadpan expressions than Mara does in this movie. Her face doesn't move, but whether she's tasing a man or standing in front of a mirror watching a cigarette dangle from her mouth, we respond to her. And like a lot of the reviews I read were just like really pointing out, like really trying to find the point of what Mara brings or what that presence is that makes her so watchable in this role. But yeah, it's in the physicality. It's in the way she like postures. It's in the hair that she has in each scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a sick performance. I'm glad that it got nominated. That almost was surprised that it, to find that it was like it's really cool that it was um, acknowledged. She lost to uh, Meryl Streep for the Iron Lady, which is whatever. Um, classic, classic Academy. <laughs> classic Academy. Like if you got to play a real person, you'll win the award. But yeah, Rooney Mara is so cool in this movie. Um, yeah. And Lisbeth Slander, like famously a cool character, kind of simultaneously like. A feminine fantasy and a male fantasy at the same time like it kind of holds both of those things to be true i know that element gets a little bit more murky and like flipped in the books um from what people have told me but i think the blankness rooney mara brings is like the same blankness that everybody kind of touts in ryan gosling um but i think she was maybe had more to do but and was more intense about it but um she was able to convey so much despite it But it's like even down to like the way she sits in a chair, like everything is so like she just like demands you to look at her every time she's doing something. And often she's like clicking on a computer or smoking a cigarette like she's not like doing physically a ton, but she is like so captivating in her interpretation of this character. Hey, between this and uh Carol, just two great backdoor Christmas movies for Rooney Mara. Excellent. A Rooney Mara Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a Christmas that would be. Um, just two other quick notes is uh when the she is infiltrating Burner Storm's company and like has the blonde wig and everything, the score reminded me of Soul. <laughs> um obviously both done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Um, but it has this like kind of doting sound that when um I forget what the character's name is in Soul is like looking through the archives and searching. It has this kind of booping melody to it that uh, is fun and was a thought that I had while watching the movie. And lastly, I've just been thinking, damn, it's too bad this trilogy didn't kick off. Yeah. You know, which leads into my first thing I looked up into this movie is why didn't this trilogy kick off? Um, Basically, it didn't make enough money. Um, It's hard to justify a hardware sequel they were signed on to do it for the most of the first half of the decade um craig was in mara was in fincher was in zalian was in uh apparently there was a script that was written and then they went under some rewrites and then it just seemed to kind of fade into the ether um they did like a soft sequel reboot situation a few years ago with claire foy called the girl in the spider's web it came out in 2018 and was not liked (laughs) 
Um, so that's too bad. Uh, I think I saw an interview in like 2015. Rooney Mara was still like, yeah, I'm down to do it. Like I'm, I'm signed on to do it, um, which would have been really cool uh, for her. That would have been an interesting shift in that decade for her and and just for movies in general. Like a year later, Avengers is released, which makes the amount of money it makes. And it's like, all right, um, that's the IP things kind of shift to and away from these murder mystery movies um, and kind of gets more into the true crime series and all that stuff. So um, mm-hmm. it's too bad. I would I would have liked to see at least one more of these movies because, again, Fincher and, and uh, Mara and Craig kind of pulled a lot of out of each other. Something that I thought about regarding Daniel Craig while watching this movie was um, thinking about the last time I sort of saw him investigating a murder was in um, the oh. <laughs> Knives, Out, Knives Out movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, your your accent is like going to be different. Just imagine uh, if Benoit Blanc was in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I know, right? He'd be like, where's Harriet? <laughs> Other thing I looked up is just any general Fincher stories from production. It was like your normal lot of takes, very grueling movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Fincher, while making this movie, was on the press cycle for the social network and then, you know, presently the Oscars mm-hmm. uh, campaign. And so there was a quote that said, I feel like I've operated for the last 11 months on less than 100 hours of sleep. Um, I believe it. <laughs> and honestly, my first thought was like, is that different than your other movies, Fincher? It feels like yeah. you're that kind of guy. I didn't really find any, uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal nightmare stories from this movie. Is it possible that Rooney Mara is just more of a badass than Jake Gyllenhaal? <laughs> it's incredibly possible. Maybe Rooney Mara is just built for Fincher. I kind of think she is. Like everyone's, everybody's review of working with Fincher is like, holy shit, this man is crazy. And I love that, like, Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara is like, how about another one? <laughs> Round two. Yeah. Not that I haven't spent, like, every day for the last 12 years thinking about David Fincher and the movies he makes. But I think rewatching this one after, was it, 11 years has gone by, um, I really can see where he grows after every movie he makes. Like, um, this is not a spoiler, but there's like flashback elements to the game. And these seem like a little bit more refined versions of those same flashbacks. And then I even think that Gone Girl is like a more refined version of some of the aspects of this movie. And like, you can see that he's like building upon himself and learning and growing from his other things that he would want to like narrow down. So it's like a tight situation based on his own films which i think is great to be able to see when you're watching his movies yeah i think in uh in movies in athletics in life uh we love to see someone building upon themselves and growing um and we just get the blessing of getting to watch that happen for fincher yeah for sure um do you have any questions for me about the movie a couple quick ones and then we'll get into one uh, this cat or the Gone Girl cat? Definitely the Gone Girl cat. Um, <laughs> I hate how long the scene is. With, <laughs> it's so long. You see it from like eight different angles. You do. But but I do really appreciate um, every time Daniel Craig comes home and he's like, cat, cat. <laughs> and he's like, oh, there you are. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. So would you have rather gotten the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy in the 2010s? 
or the rest of what Fincher gave us in the 2010s, which is Gone Girl, House of Cards, Mindhunter, and Love, Death, and Robots. To me, it's a no-brainer that I would have rather had everything he gave us. <laughs> um, I don't... I'm, like, not attached to the idea of David Fincher making um, sequels to films of his. Um, he seems attached to it, which is great, and I will welcome anything that he makes, but I'm not like, wow, I wish I, there were three related movies in a row that David Fincher had made because you have things like Mindhunter and House of Cards that are more episodic as they are television shows um, that you do get that level of dedication and direction in like a multi-step situation. But Gone Girl is just a revolution. House of Cards completely changed the way Netflix makes television. And like Mindhunter is the only good adaptation of that entire situation of the FBI trying to figure out how serial killers work. Um, and Love, Death, and Robots is extremely overlooked. <laughs> and is like very delightful. Yeah. I, I like that show. <laughs> you like a David Fincher product? No way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is crazy to think though. He, he goes social network this movie and then doesn't make another movie until gone girl and then doesn't make another movie until make because he's working on these tv yeah so like in my head the trade is actually like two more of these girl the dragon tattoo movies and then like probably two other movies but then we we probably lose out on gone girl do you think fincher would have made mank if he had made these other two movies he was gonna make mank no matter what <laughs> i know that's my problem <laughs> <laughs> well here's the thing here's a hypothetical if he makes the two sequels and then maybe he even does Gone Girl and that becomes a TV show or he does like he still does House of Cards or whatever. He doesn't do Mank until like 2024, 2025. And that's probably going to be a stronger Oscars year than the year of 2020. And so not as much hype. I'm, I'm saying this as a person who kind of enjoyed Mank. <laughs> Mank was fine. Like, I have no qualms with Mank. But, like, I'm not over the moon about Mank. And my Fincher expectations are just different. Um, I think what he would have done is he would have made Gone Girl. And when he would have made Mindhunter, he maybe would have directed the first episode of House of Cards and then give it to, to somebody else. And he never would have done Love, Death, and Robots. And then he would have done these other two movies. But like I Gone Girl would be coming out like right now. Maybe. Well he the plan was for them to film the sequels back to back. That's helpful. Yeah, so I think he might have still he could have maybe gotten Gone Girl as well. Cause they were stuck developing this movie for like two or three years, or the sequel for two or three years that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. No, I think Gone Girl comes out still with the yeah. with the trilogy. I think he's very dedicated to that idea. But does Gone Girl then star Ben Affleck? Because Ben Affleck didn't like, you know, properly or, come back. Or if Fincher is busy doing other things, does the Reese Witherspoon version of Gone Girl get made? Oh, Which no. was the original plan. Yeah. And then Fincher was available to sort of take it over. There's so many possibilities here. This is a great what if. I'm glad it all panned out the way it did because I love all of this. But there's still time for more dragon tattoo. I will say that if we didn't get 
Mank in 2020, we wouldn't have gotten David Fincher in his home, slowly realizing he's not going to win his like one of nine Oscars and just progressively gets drunker and drunker <laughs> every time they pan to his Zoom screen. <laughs> oh, oh, buddy. It, it was kind of funny toward the end. He was like, cheer. That was funny. That was great. Uh, my last question for you regarding this movie, and it's kind of more just a clear out ISO, is why is this, why why is this your comfort movie? This movie is like two and a half colors, and it's more or less the same sound through the whole thing. It's either like very bright, stark white snow Sweden, or it's like very dark. We're like in a basement trying to figure something out. The tone, like you said, like even when people are talking about terrible things, everyone's like mannerism is pretty equal. And like even in the scenes of violence, it's not cacophonous in the the sound. Like if you accidentally fell asleep sort of in the beginning where she's like trying to figure out how to get a hold of her own money you like might not wake up until somebody shoots Daniel Craig. It's also like very well masked and foreshadowed through every time that like she screams into her pillow or something like that. Like a train goes by, like there's like mechanical sounds that are masking these situations. And then we find out in the end that like when, uh, Robin Wright's character and Daniel Craig were in uh, Martin's house and they hear like the wind going by it. It may have been the girl he had in the basement that we've like find out she was in the basement. And he's like that cage over there when you were here with your lovely girlfriend, like I had a girl who was in this cage and sort of like these other sounds that are masking these like loud moments. Um, And it's just like, it's so droning and just like, Similar to the Gone Girl, like, like that general like sense plays throughout the entire movie. That's what I think. (laughs) (laughs) I'd also like to go on the record for your bingo card that friend you don't all know, Cam Neely, agrees with me. (laughs) We've talked about it. It is a very sparse set and environment and production design. Um, Very minimalist and clean in a way. Yeah, it just it's it's also like just very it's very upfront and like while gruesome isn't bloody or like grotesque, Mm -hmm. it's definitely not an easy film to swallow. And like when you were asking me at the end of last episode, like, is it more or less violent? It's just it's a completely different violence. Um, But I also think that like he likes to make mind games in his violence and he does such a great job of that in this movie that makes sense you turns out you're a uh, a fincher head who knew he's so talented i am really <laughs> excited uh that we're supposedly getting another fucked up movie from fincher coming in the next year or two all right do you have any questions or comments that you would like to make or ask to me yeah did this make you want to or not want to visit sweden I don't think it deterred me from wanting to visit Sweden. Maybe I'll stay away from uh, random families who own an island. But Stockholm seemed nice. Like, great coffee shops. Um, Yeah, the coffee shop looked banging. It looks very cold. (laughs) Have you been to Sweden? I have not, but I would love to go to Sweden. I'd love to go to Stockholm. Yeah. Um, And then I I wanted to know when you figured out the mystery. Like, when you figured out... 
that it was Martin. Like as they were figuring it like, out. I, like and, yeah, until like they showed up at his house, and like he had clearly done it. I don't usually watch like mystery movies like trying to figure it out. So I, I started to get a sense of it, like when they started investigating the company, but um, mm-hmm. not much earlier than then. I think the only time I said "oh shit" though was uh when I realized Harriet was alive. Yeah, and then there's like more, even more mystery. Like they, yeah. to, she has to like tell the like how she disappeared, and then like yeah. about the sexual violence, and like upon herself, and a lot of this movie is exposition, and like oftentimes the exposition dialogue sucks. But these actors, and this is a testament to all of them, delivering the exposition in this like believable and like not like a chore feeling mm-hmm. uh, is a credit to the move to to the actors and the director. Yeah. Well, would you watch it again? Maybe. I mean, probably. I don't. I, I might like skip ahead a little bit to when they're together, but uh, it was a good one. I appreciated seeing Daniel Craig in a non-James Bond role in the 2010s. I liked seeing Rooney Mara do her thing and absolutely eat. I mm-hmm. love a movie that uh, is a testament to keeping your negatives um, yes. if you shoot film. It's yes. important. You never know what you might find or what uh, mysteries you might help solve and uncover. So... Always get your negatives back. We're proud proponents of physical media on this podcast. Absolutely. Even though I have read Despite making a podcast. Streaming. <laughs> <laughs> We've streamed all of our movies. So, yes, I would watch it again. Um, between the two, which one did you like the most? Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> I picked Rush Hour. What a fucking surprise. Uh, let's just fuck it. Let's just talk about the next movies. <laughs> one of these days. I mean, I think I like came You really have close. yet to pick... My movie, I've picked your movie a few times. I think I have been like, it's inarguable for me to say that these are not on the same level, but due to nostalgic reasons, I will be choosing my own choice. Um, but I think that's as close as I've gotten. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, there's always like, it's always like Creed or Rocky Horror Picture Show. And like, how do you compare those two? Um, yeah, exactly. Where I'm like, Creed is the better movie. But (laughs) (laughs) I like Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) Um, All right. Let's just talk about the next movies. We're going to talk about a couple of Best Picture winners. We are going to talk about some Best Picture winners. I feel like my blind spot is way more embarrassing than your blind spot. But this is a no shame podcast. So in our next swap, we'll be swapping some Best Picture winners. I will be watching Casablanca for the first time. And Zach will be watching Amadeus. Which I didn't know one best picture until like maybe two months ago. Uh, okay, Zach, do you, what do you know about Amadeus? Isn't it like about Beethoven? Yes. Okay, and it's like three hours long. Yes. <laughs> uh, wait, no, it's about Amadeus Mozart. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Come on. I didn't know. Wait, I didn't know that was Mozart's like first yeah, name. Yeah, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. That well, His name was Wolfgang? Yeah. And he went I, by Mozart? What's his last name? I know, but did all composers <laughs> go by their last name? I think so. Oh. I've been to his um, house in Austria. It's like okay. a tourist destination. Um, How was the setup? It was nice. You can only see it from the outside, unfortunately. Oh. Um, but yeah, like Ludwig van Beethoven and Johann Sebastian Bach, like Bach and Beethoven. I I know nearly nothing about this movie. Chopin. I mean, none of these people are in it. These are just other classical artists that go by their last name. (laughs) 
No, but that's what I'm saying. I, you know, I, I knew so little about this movie that I thought it was about another composer. What do you know about Casablanca? Kind of a lot, but like not <laughs> enough. Like I, I feel like I know parts and like historic elements of it, but like I'm not sure if I understand know the plot of it yeah um i also know it's very long but i'm excited to see it no it's not long at all i might be mixing it up with gone with the wind yeah this movie is a crispy 140 oh delightful (laughs) that's great um i was never under that impression where is this rank on your like oh god i haven't seen this movie like right under gone with the wind (laughs) (laughs) it should honestly be above gone with the wind because Sure. I mean, they're pretty interchangeable. It's like two of cinema's best movies I just haven't seen. It's uh, it's really high up there. Um, <laughs> it's not like a cool thing to tell people. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many conversations it. you've got into that bring up Casablanca. I, it's not me. I'm so excited to uh, show you Amadeus because it is just chaos. It's madness. <laughs> like most movies I enjoy. That's true. Um, but I'm excited. And... Casablanca, as much as I remember, romantic. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, that'll be nice. Very fun. Best pictures. It's good on a Sunday morning. Okay, good to know. I got a Sunday morning coming up. Hell yeah, Um, we love a Sunday morning. (laughs) In the meantime, uh, aside from Oscar Best Picture winner Amadeus, what else is on your watch list? So I want to check out this 2022 movie Duel. It's with Karen Gillan, Aaron Paul. Um, directed by Riley Stearns. I think that's his name. He did um, The Art of Self-Defense in 2019. It looks quirky. It's a fun concept that I won't spoil because I also haven't seen it, so I don't want to get it wrong. Um, So that's up there. Uh, I want to watch Kingdom of Heaven after watching Gladiator. I would like to watch uh, the director's cut of that uh, Ridley Scott film. I've heard a lot of buzz on uh, on the Netflix movie RRR or three R's or triple R's or whatever, um, which is three hours I got to carve out, but I want to check it out. I've heard nothing but good things. And then I think by the time you listen to this episode, Thor Love and Thunder will have come out. So I can't wait to see uh, Chris Hemsworth at his comedic best. I cannot wait for Thor Love and Thunder. Yeah. Um, I was talking to, here's another bingo sheet for you. I was talking to our good friend Maya um, about the Chris Wars and how Chris Hemsworth is my number one Chris in the Chris Wars. Um, And if, if, Put into consideration, Chris Messina is actually my number one, but he is not in the running. (laughs) Um, But I was commenting that uh, light year, heavy Boston scumbag version of Chris Evans (laughs) is like really up there. (laughs) It's like 1A right now is like scumbag Chris Evans. (laughs) Like 2 is regular Chris Evans. Yeah, what's on your watch list? A movie that's coming out this week that I can't wait is Spiderhead. Um, I can't wait to turn off my brain and just watch hot dudes doing weird shit. It's kind of my favorite type of movie. Thor Love and Thunder is on my list as well. Um, and then a podcast that we really like just did a draft of movies from 2009, and they spoke a lot about The Hurt Locker and uh, a movie I have not seen. There was a comment thrown around of if you're listening to this podcast, but you haven't seen The Hurt Locker, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So (laughs) I'm sure I'll I'll like it. Um, So I'm and it's on like Netflix or HBO Max right now or something like that. I saw that it was streaming. Um, So I'm going to watch that. And then honestly, like there's a lot of really good true crime like miniseries right now that that are out that everyone is talking about um, that I kind of can't wait to 
like just immerse myself in and binge. I've been finally getting to the staircase, which has been great with my girl, Tony Collette. Um, and there's just a lot of other good stuff out there right now. That's like in that same realm that I want to dedicate some time to. So that's, what's on my list. Nice. I feel like we've had some slower movie watching months lately. Yeah. Well, Zach, you cracked a hundred already. Oh, I did. I did do that. My hundredth movie, my hundredth new watch of 2022 was dog the channing tatum vehicle it was good like the dog was cute channing tatum one of our most underappreciated comedic actors we're chugging along we're we're behind the pace of last year a little bit but that was kind of the point i wanted to make sure to watch movies a little more economically uh things are more open so you know social life is important as well and catching movies in the theater so uh, what's your movie watching uh, life like these days or like this year or about halfway through uh, 2022 by the time people listen to this? So what's your uh, stats looking like? Not that numbers matter. You can watch as many or as few movies as you want, but we are two people who keep track. Um, for new movies, movies I hadn't seen before, I'm at 54 right now. Nice. Um, and with all that's also like sprinkled in a handful of really great TV shows like I watched Severance and Yellow Jackets and Euphoria season 2 and all this kind of stuff so that's also something I like pride myself on keeping track of um but I was actually just listening to our end of 2021 podcast the other day and you had watched 104 more movies than I had last year <laughs> so that seems like pretty good we're like on track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have we have a certain average that I yeah. think we'll uh, maintain for as long as we have the schedules that we have. I also like don't have like an 18 hour plane ride. <laughs> like oh, two, I knocked out two of yeah. them. <laughs> like, thank you to Tom Holland, because his movies continue to just be like the mindless movie I choose. Yeah. On a plane ride. I'm talking to about chaos walking in Uncharted specifically. Well, thank you guys for listening to just another truly unhinged version <laughs> of blind swatters um you can always find a new episode on the second tuesday of every month um interact with us on social media you can follow the podcast on instagram at blind spotters pod and we are also on twitter at blind spotters there's always fun content going on um i love i love an instagram poll and you guys are so good at it so definitely follow us over there keep up to date of like all the in-between conversation um and then zach where can people find you on the internet uh you can find me on twitter at zach Pocklip. and as always you can find me and follow me on letterboxd amanda what about you you can send me any compliments at amanda luberto on all social media we did it we did it great job i'm proud of finally taking this out of your blind spot we're like so close to finishing the fincher like the whole situation well thank you guys so much and we will see you soon bye wow huh. yeah you all good for <laughs> <laughs> listen to me yeah <laughs> that was so good <laughs> <laughs>